I need to pray and ask God's help, so I'll do that right now. Father, this is your word, and these are your people. Your spirit is the author of this word, so Holy Spirit, grant me clarity of mind and speech, and give us hearts to receive your word, just so we can know Jesus better and love him and serve him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We ask this in, in his great name. Amen. If you've been a Christian for a while, um, for many Christians, they're familiar with Romans 8.28, and that is translated different ways, but essentially it says, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so that, a question I have about that verse is, how could God actually do that? How can he actually take all things, everything that you've ever experienced in your life, so think of the worst things that have happened, horrible days, horrible weeks, horrible years you've had, and God's going to take those things and not only... Um, make them fade away, but he's going to actually turn them for good. How, how does he do that? Well, the way he's able to do that, from what we'll see in this text today, is God, because in his sovereignty, he was able to overrule the greatest evil ever, and the greatest evil ever was the death of Jesus Christ, putting him to death unjustly. That was the greatest evil there ever was perpetrated. Because he was able to overrule that in his sovereignty and turn that for good, into the greatest good, actually, so that people could, could have life and forgiveness of sins and be saved. He, he can take the worst things in your life and he can make them actually become good one day. So because God, so here's the main idea of this message today. Well, I think we'll have it on the slide, yeah. Because God sovereignly overrules evil for good, Jesus' death will gather all God's children as his one people. So how do we see that in this text? Well, initially we're seeing, uh, as, as Sherry just shared, Lazarus, last week we saw the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raised him. And so now we have um, many of the Jews, therefore, in verse 45, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So it seems that Mary might have had more sympathizers than Martha. I don't know, that's not a big point here, but you see Martha's not mentioned, so all these people come, they're, they're sympathizing with Mary. At any rate, John says that many of them believed in him, in Jesus, after they had seen Lazarus be raised back to life, and now uh, they're believing. To some measure or not, we don't know how solid their faith is, but they they believe it's better than what those in verse 46 do. They seem to be going to tell on Jesus to the Pharisees because it was widely known that the Pharisees opposed Jesus. And John kind of contrasts the two groups those who went to the Pharisees didn't go to win them over to Jesus, but to tattle on him for raising a dead man to life. Even, even if their motives were good, the news doesn't make any more of them uh, any, any more favorable to Jesus. So look at their response in verse 47. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered with the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this... Everyone will believe in him. Everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you might think that since Jesus raised a dead man to life, at last his enemies would believe, like, hey, this guy, he raised somebody from the dead. He's, he's amazing. This, we've never seen anybody do this before. So, so they should just stop being a, a hostile to him and, and believe in him. So instead of softening their hearts toward him, the news of this amazing sign only increases their determination to stop him. 
In fact, they hate him so much they can't even say his name. They say, what are we doing? This man performs many signs, so they can't even say his name. They're not skeptical in the least about the fact he's doing many signs. They, they openly admit, this man is doing many signs. What are we going to do about this? And if they let him continue doing this, they say everyone will believe in him. And they fear that the Romans, if they hear that there's a popular messianic uprising, will take away their place as a temple, probably, and their, and their nation. They fear that Rome might destroy the temple and remove the, their status as, as a semi-autonomous state. So right now they can, they can function fairly well on their own. The, Rome isn't like constantly monitoring them, but, but if Rome hears that, that there's a messianic uh, undertow there, they'll, they'll take them down. Which, what we see here is the hardness of their hearts toward Jesus is, is stunning. It's amazing how hard their hearts are toward Jesus. How could they fully admit that Jesus is doing many miraculous signs and not even begin to reconsider their unbelief? This is irrational, inexcusable unbelief at its worst. What we learn from this is that persisting in unbelief, even when you have clear exposure to the goodness, truth, and power of Jesus, can push you into a place where you, you're no longer able to, to respond to him at all. Your, your, your mind is made up, you're done. You cannot be persuaded to ever believe. That's a scary place to be. Maybe you've known people like this. Maybe some people in your family or, or friends are like that, where they, they, there's nothing that they could, you could say or do for them that would ever convince them that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior. Other things they'll believe without any question. Other religions, they'll, they'll, that's okay, I'll tolerate or, or buy into. Other, other ways of enhancing your spirituality or whatever. They'll accept those, but, but when it comes to trusting in Jesus, nothing moves them from unbelief. They're hopelessly opposed to him. So what do you do? Well, you continue to love them. You continue to pray for them. You show them who Jesus is by loving them, and you pray to the only one who can shine his light into their hearts to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. While they still live, you can still have hope that they might stop their suppressing the truth and believe in the one who is the truth. So you can still have that hope. It's possible that there may be some here today whose minds are made up against Jesus. So that no matter how he has worked in your life, no matter how you have, how many objections may be answered, or no matter what is going on, no matter how good you may have seen his seen him through his people, you will not trust in Jesus for eternal life. You will not worship him as a son of God. And I'm, I can't lie to you, it's a very dangerous place to be. It's dangerous because it's eternal life or eternal death. If you don't receive God's gift of life in Christ, you won't have eternal life. In fact, you will be condemned. Which isn't what God wants to do because we see in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So that's what God offers you. In fact, he goes on to say, for God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world. That wasn't his intent. He didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, that the world might be saved through him. But whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Because our first parents rebelled against God's good rule, the default 
uh, destiny for humans has been eternal death. It means not just physical death in this life, but eternal death in the life to come. That means only experiencing God's just anger and alienation forever. But God in his mercy sent his son to save those who believe in him from, from this default destiny. So that you don't have to, to go there. So even though we still die physically, we will live forever with Jesus, ultimately in his new creation, enjoying his glorious goodness forever. This is why it's eternally important that you don't get hardened in unbelief. Today you should believe in Jesus if you have not yet believed in him. In this next section here, you see the high priest Caiaphas counseling that Jesus should die for the nation. So in verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, meaning that, that faithful year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The high priest in that faithful year was Caiaphas, as we've seen, and he says with great wisdom and tact, you're, but, you're all a bunch of know-nothings. He says this because uh, he doesn't think that they're, they're being reasonable in recognizing that if, if Jesus is put to death, that, that could save the nation rather than the whole nation perishing. In other words, Caiaphas says if they were thinking logically, they would realize that the death of one man dying instead of, of, of the people is better than the whole nation being destroyed by Rome. Now, ironically, what does happen is even though uh, he says this, about 35 years later, Rome would destroy the temple and would disperse Jews from being a nation. So even though they did put Jesus to death, uh, what he was see seeking to avoid happens in the next generation. So what Caiaphas intended by these words happened to them anyway, but what God meant by Caiaphas' words is still happening today. So, so how could God mean something by Caiaphas' words? Why do you even say that? Because it says he was high priest that year and he prophesied. So we'll see this in verse 51 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. John says that Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the, for the nation. He spoke words God overruled to communicate the truth about God's purpose for Jesus' death. He didn't know he was prophesying. He didn't mean to prophesy. In his mind, he only intended to persuade the others that they should kill Jesus, put him to death. And that, that would preserve the temple and the state of Israel from being destroyed by the Romans. Both Caiaphas and John understand Jesus' death to be substitutionary. That is, either Jesus dies or the nation dies, but they mean radically different things from, by, by that. God intended his words to mean that he would die for, this, for the nation in terms of, of Israel, in terms of being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or as Jesus had said earlier back in, in chapter 10, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep to give them eternal life. So this is an amazing text. How can it be that Caiaphas intends his words only for instigating an evil plan to put Jesus to death, and at the same time God intends those very same words 
as a prophecy of the greatest good ever, that God would give his son to die, with the result that both Jews and Gentiles from all over the world would be saved and gathered into one. How, could he do, how can God do that? Well, the most obvious answer is, he's God. And if he's God, God is sovereign. If God isn't so- sovereign, he's no longer God. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? Well, he's able to do all things that don't violate his holy and good character. He can do everything that does not violate his holy and good character. If you see in, in Isaiah 46, this is not on the screen, but what Isaiah says is, God, God, God says through Isaiah, God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God is able to, to direct even the evil intention of people to accomplish his good purposes. Yet those, those people are still responsible for their evil intentions and actions. God will still hold them accountable for their, their wrongdoing. You have to see this in the Bible, friends. If you don't see this in the Bible, you're, it's going to really mess you up. Because you've got God's sovereignty. He's able to do everything he wants without, without any, uh, anything getting in his way. And people are still responsible. So if, if you don't have a category for that, you can't make sense of the Bible. Because the Bible is full of God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. If you can't see how those, that those two things go together, then you can't understand much, much of the Bible. And you're going to get your head twisted in a knot. So you've got to have a place for both of those things to be true. So God is sovereign over all things, but he's not the author of, of sin or evil, and people are still responsible for their evil actions. So we see this in, in Acts chapter 2, for example. Acts chapter 2, 23, Peter's preaching, and he says, This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of, of lawless men. So what Peter's saying here is he's holding those who delivered Jesus to be put to death responsible, and he says this was all according to God's plan. So the people then, if you read the rest of the, the account, they, they don't say, well, hey, we couldn't help it. It was God's plan. No, they say in essence, oh, no, that was really bad. We're guilty. What do we do? Then in Acts chapter 4, you see a similar a similar thing where they're praying to God and, and they're reminding God of these things that have happened. So they say, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your servant, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and, and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So again, in this text, we see people who were gathered together against Jesus. They're responsible for doing that. Each person or group doing him wrong yet doing whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to, to happen. Again, this doesn't mean that God approves of what they're doing or that they weren't responsible for what they did. They did evil, but God purposed that they did this to fulfill his good plan of redemption for those who would believe in his son. Now, if you could pull back up, go back up a couple of slides and get uh, 11, 51, 52 up on the screen. So the fact that God is sovereign doesn't mean that our choices don't matter or that they're not real or that we're robots or that we're uh, puppets. It does mean that God's choices are ultimate, not, not people's. If 
fact, R.C. Sproul says, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. In other words, they, they acknowledge, oh yeah, they'll say God's sovereign, but they really act as if people are sovereign. So what difference does it make to you? Is this, do you care about this truth at all? What difference does it make? Well, for one thing, it gives us great hope and trust that whatever evil we go through, God is able and willing to work it for good. Whatever, what, think of the worst thing that's ever happened to you, and God, if you are in Christ, God guarantees he's going to turn that for good. One day it'll be good. Not just, not just like in the past I forgot about it or neutralized. It's going to be for good in your life. God is able to do that because of his sovereign power. Now, sometimes we, we may see that good in this life, but often we will not see it. We, we won't until Jesus returns and writes all wrongs. He will do that. Then, then we'll see how through the death of his son, God was able to, to turn all the evil his people experienced into good. Because, because God is sovereign, we know he is able to work all things together for our ultimate good. For good, again, not just neutralized, but he's, he's going to take it all and he's going to make it all good. In another place it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So because God is able to work all things according to the counsel of his will, he's, he's pre-designed us to have an inheritance, a heavenly inheritance one day. That It's guaranteed because of God, not because of us, but because God is going to ensure it's going to happen through his sovereign oversight of our lives. John says the prophecy included more than Jesus dying for the nation of Israel only. He would also die to gather into one the children of God scattered around the world. Now for Jews, a purely Jewish context, they, they would have heard this as the diaspora, the, the Jews who are spread throughout the Roman Empire. But as Jesus said earlier, that in laying his, back in John, chapter 10, laying his life down for the sheep, he wasn't dying for the Jewish sheep only. So John doesn't refer only to Jews by referring to the scattered ones of God's children. What he's saying here, Jesus said he had other sheep that were not of this Jewish fold. He said he must bring them also. Here, uh, and he, he said they would be one flock under one shepherd. What John is saying here is that he would die to gather into one the scattered children of God. So the scattered children of God include both Jews and Gentiles from all over the world. We, we need to keep in mind that no one is a natural-born child of God. In fact, John told us in, in chapter 1 how people become God's children. We see this in John 1, 12 to 13. John 1, 12 to 13. John says, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So becoming a child of God doesn't result from family religious heritage, from any human religious efforts. It's not a result of uh, spiritual genetics or human decisions at all. Rather, becoming a child of God is a right given to those who receive Jesus, who explicitly believe in his name as Savior, Messiah, Son of God. So why does John say Jesus will die for God's children if they, if they don't exist yet? Since Jesus' saving work has not yet been completed, the gospel has not gone out, therefore, 
These future children of God have not even heard of him yet or believed in his name. Many of them are yet to be born. Kind of like, you here? So you're some of God's children. And Jesus said this 2,000 years ago, and he's saying, I'm, I'm dying for my children. Well, John refers to them this way because of what Jesus said earlier back in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then in verse 39, similarly, This is God's will, the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus came to guarantee the salvation of those who God had given him. That's why John could say Jesus would die for God's children even before they become his children. Jesus in his death wasn't thinking, boy, I sure hope this is worth it. He's not on the cross saying, man, I hope, I hope we get some God's children out of this. No, he knew, he knew he was going to, who he was dying for, God's children. Then Jesus died together, that Jesus died together into one, all of God's scattered children. And I'm going to ask you again to get John 11:51 up on the screen. Assures us that Jesus will complete his mission. Jesus will complete his mission. Absolutely. All who he came to save will be saved. And just as the Father sent Jesus into the world to die and be raised, so he would save and gather all God's children. So he sends his children into the world to finish the mission that he died for. So he calls you, us, me, together to um, get the message out so that more people will hear the message and become his children. So those who spend their lives to make Jesus known are assured their efforts are not in vain. They're not wasted. For as Jesus said, all the Father has given me shall come to me. As they hear the message of that God's Son died for them, that they could become his children. Now, we may wonder, is it really possible we can finish this task? I mean, can we really complete the task of, of, of Gathering in all God's children, is it going to happen? Given our weaknesses and our, and our remaining sinfulness as church, not just Harvest Church, but Christians in general, we've, we've stumbled and fumbled along for these last 2,000 years. Are we going to be able to finish the task? Well, <clears throat> I'm not going to turn there, but Revelation 5 says that by his death, he purchased people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And he made them a kingdom and priest to God. And in Revelation 7, you see that these are a great, uncountable multitude before the throne of Jesus, the Lamb of God. So somehow, God's children, God's church, is going to get the task done through Jesus Christ. Christ's church will finish the mission in spite of our many weaknesses and failings. Now, it's not to minimize the challenge of the task remaining. The remaining people groups with little to no gospel witness are still unreached because they are the hardest to reach. That's why they're in reach. So it will not be without sacrificial effort to get the gospel established among them. But the fact that the task is hard doesn't mean it's impossible. Jesus said we are to ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth labors into the harvest. So it's the least we can and should do. I believe as far as cross-cultural missions, since these unreached people don't have Christians among them and, and they don't want missionaries coming to them. They're not looking for missionaries. You can't come to that country and say, hey, I'm a missionary. Can I, will you let me in? No. They're not going to let you in. Uh, the, the, the way it's going to have to happen is ordinary people doing their work among them. 
business's mission. You're going to have to go and, and do what you love to do, do what you're skilled to do, and just live among them as ordinary people. And that's how the, that's how the task is going to be finished. Because right now, you can't get into most countries where the least reached people are, apart from taking a skill there. So ordinary Christians earning their living among unreached peoples. That means those who want to bring the gospel to these people are going to need to do this. The question is not if we are called to leverage our lives for the gospel. It's only where and how. I love the mission slogan that Pastor J.D. Greer of the Summit Church in North Carolina has established for, for the church. Whatever you're good at, do it well for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Whatever you're good at, do it well for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And we should all be living this way anyway where we are. But some of us should consider doing what you love and what you're good at where the gospel of Jesus Christ has not yet broken in. Now, one last thing I need to say about John 11.52. John says that what was going to be the purpose of Jesus' death was to gather into one the scattered children of God. In other words, as amazing as it is, so it wasn't God's purpose just to save children from his children from hell and get them to heaven. It was to gather them into one. As amazing as it is that Jesus is able to save people from sin and reconcile them to a holy God, it's no less amazing that Jesus is able to unite human beings with all of our differences and hostilities and hatred toward each other, with our relentless selfishness, with all of our prejudices, with all of our political, racial, and social divisions, and unite us into one body, the church. That takes a miracle. And John is saying that Caiaphas is prophesying that. He didn't know it, but it's going to happen. Much of Jesus' teaching before his death, starting with chapter 13 through 16, is about how we're to love one another in spite of our differences. And then in John 17, and if you have a Bible, you might turn there, John 17. Jesus prays a lot in that prayer to his Father about unity. So in verse 11, 17, 11, he says, He's asked that they may all be one, even as we are, Jesus, Jesus and the Father are. In verse 21, he says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And in verse 23, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. In other words... Jesus died to gather God's children scattered in different cultures, speaking different languages with different physical characteristics, and with many hostilities toward one another, into one. And this oneness, this unity, is not just surface unity, nor does it mean that we all are going to do all the same things culturally. Jesus prays that his people would be one, just as he and the Father are one. They're, so Jesus and the Father are one. They're not the same person. They have different roles in the Trinity, but, but, they're, but they're spiritually united. They're in one another. Just like the church, we're, we're spiritually united together, even though we're, we have different giftings and different cultures. This oneness that Jesus prays for is so distinct from anything the world knows that as they see it, they can know that the Father sent Jesus. And that the Father loves his people even as he loved Jesus by seeing the oneness of God's people. Wow, really? I wonder if people can see that 
in our church? Hope so. The greatest divisions between people in history have been between Jews and Gentiles. The hostilities have been intense, even up to the present time. It seems that the Jews are still irrationally hated by many Gentile groups, and so Jews have often returned the favor. If through Jesus' death on the cross, Jews and Gentiles can be reconciled, can be made one, then it's, there's hope that, that all the warring parties of Gentile groups can be united as one through Christ's death as well. In Ephesians 2, we see that Jesus, through his death on the cross, has provided reconciliation for Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. So one new man, one before God in the, through the cross, reconciled together in one body. Hostility killed. Jesus', Jesus atonement provides it. Jesus' death on the cross provides for the unification of God's global church. Church shouldn't be seeking to be more ethnically diverse just because it's cool in the culture, it's hip, or because it plays well in our culture's desire to celebrate diversity. Christians should desire genuine ethnic unity because Christ in his death is gathering the scattered children of God into one. Martin Luther King Jr. said, in America, at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, it's 11.10 right now, when we, when we stand and sing, and Christ has no east and west, we stand at the most segregated hour in this nation. He said, this is tragic. Now, reality check here for Camus. In Camus, 88% of us, I, this may be a few years old, are uh, Caucasian. 0.92% of us are African-American, and 5.77% of us are Asian. So we're probably not going to have large groups of African-American or Asian people storming through our doors anytime soon. But um, the global church that Christ is gathering is not mostly white Caucasian. White Caucasians make up about 16% of the global population. And so that means... 84% are Asian, Middle Eastern, or black, whether African or other black cultures around the, the world. So the church is not mostly white people. The church is mostly darker-skinned people. So the church shouldn't leave it up to the world to set the agenda for ethnic unity or reconciliation. We should pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with each other as we are God's children, his family. Now, we're going to land a plane here. Verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus knows his hour to die on the cross is, is not quite here, so he keeps a low profile, and he stays in an area probably about 12 miles away from Jerusalem. We should note, though, that even though Jesus trusts in God's sovereignty and, and Jesus, as Son of God, also understood sovereignty, 
he didn't needlessly open himself up to his enemies. So he kind of keeps, avoids them until the time is right. And the time is coming up like in another week. Then in verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So the Passover is about to start. Jesus is the ultimate lamb of God for the Passover. He's the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He's going to take away the sins of the world. He doesn't need any purification himself. Everybody else does. He's pure. Jesus is the talk of the temple. Do you think he's going to show up? I think it's probably the first time someone uttered these words. What would Jesus do? No bracelets out yet or anything, just curious. Although the, the chief priests and Pharisees are not usually fans of one another, they are united in their desire to get rid of Jesus. So there's oneness between the Pharisees and, and the priests uh, about getting rid of Jesus. Their plan, to kill him, their plan to kill him when executed is the worst injustice ever done. By far, by far the worst evil ever, wickedness ever perpetrated in the universe was the plotting and the planning and the carrying out of the, of the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Worst crime ever. Of all the injustices we see in our time, nothing else comes close to the wickedness of putting to death the Son of God, who deserved only to be worshipped and honored as our Creator, King of Kings, who came into this world to do the greatest good, and the greatest good that we, that we could ever have is forgiveness of sins and eternal life given to us as a free gift by putting faith in Jesus the greatest good. So again, what have we been saying? Because God sovereignly overrules evil for good, Jesus' death will gather all God's children as his one people. And because God sovereignly overrules evil for good, the worst evil in your life, he's going to overrule that for good. So think about that. What, what are those things in your life that you, that you really can't wait to see what God's going to bring good out of? And you may not see it in this life. You might. So you can, if that's something you want to pray about today, we're going to have people out in the hall uh, to pray for you. So think about praying about trusting God and his sovereign work in your life. Think about people you need, who you know need the gospel, who are hardening their hearts to the gospel, who, who just will not ever seem to ever listen to anything about Jesus anymore. Their, their minds are made up. Pray for those people. If you're one of those people, we'd love to pray for you. So be, uh, I'm going to pray and then be prepared to go out in the hall and get prayer. And then we're going to sing a song as well of worship. Join me. Father, we're amazed at how you could take these wicked words of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, Caiaphas, and make them be words of truth about how the greatest good can be accomplished in the world, salvation for all who put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you are not constrained by all the evil in the world, that one day it will all be judged, and now you actually work your good plans even at the hands of wicked men. You don't approve of it. It's not that you're responsible for evil, but in your sovereign goodness, you're able to do this. 
And I thank you, Father, that each of us, for evil been done to us or evil that we have done, in Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross, he is going to turn it all into good. We've seen some of it now already, Father, and we, we trust that one day we'll see it all and be able to praise you for all eternity for, for, for how you do this. And Father, we want this mission to be fulfilled of God's children being called into his family and for the, um, the unity of, of ethnic peoples all, all over the world. You're, that's who our church is. You're combining all these different groups who have been at war with one another in many ways and glorifying your name by, by unifying us in Jesus Christ. So I pray, Father, we'll see more of that represented in your church globally, and here in Camus as well. We thank you, Father, that you do hear our prayers. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for your goodness to us. We're amazed at how you are. We're humbled by your sovereignty. We're amazed at what you're able to accomplish for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.